At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. Several years ago, some friends of ours stepped into the world of uh, fostering and adoption. They had gone through um, the terrible time of struggling with infertility and felt like the Lord had led them to a place where he was calling them to uh, adopt some kids. And uh, they began initially by adopting a sibling set of three, and they had kind of thought that was where their journey was going to end, but uh, God always has a funny sense of humor and led them to actually adopt another sibling set of six. Uh, and so they're friends of ours back in Akron. They have nine adopted children, and it's been a joy uh, through our time there to walk alongside of our friends. And uh, I feel like through that, I experienced so many um, incredible blessings. They were super formative on even my wife and I and our journey of adopting our daughter. And, and just watching them kind of work through things with their family, uh, I learned a lot. And one of the lessons that I really learned through their journey uh, was the power and importance of identity. Uh, I still remember I was having, uh, I can't remember if it was breakfast or lunch, but with uh, the grandfather, actually, of this family, my friend's dad, and uh, he was telling me the story about uh, pretty soon after they had adopted their initial uh, sibling set of three, and our friends had brought them over to our house, and my friend Todd, who was telling me the story, was watching uh, the kids, and, and one of the, the boys began to kind of act up and act out while he was there, and Todd and his wife kept kind of trying to correct him and was kind of struggling uh, with him. He wasn't really listening, and finally, after getting a little bit frustrated, my friend Todd uh, decided to take a different approach, and so he, he took his new grandson, and he set him down on his lap, and uh, he began to explain to him, and he, he looked at his grandson, and he said, listen, you're a Smith now. That was their last name. That was their actual last name. I'm not just using that generically, right? He said, you're, you're a Smith now. You're a part of this family, and because you're a smith, there are certain things that we do as smiths, and there are certain things that we don't do as smiths. And I want you to understand what some of those things are. And as my friend Todd sat and told me the story, he told me that after this conversation, he just saw the countenance in his grandson begin to change. Because who we understand ourselves to be influences how we live, how we behave, how we act. That's not just true for adopted children, that's true for all of us. The core of who we believe ourselves to be, who we understand and what we understand of our identity shapes how we live in the world. Last week, we kicked off a series that we called Unstoppable, where we're looking at one of the great chapters in the Bible, Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church in Rome to live in God's new reality. And that Paul believes that as we live in that new reality, we will begin to experience an unstoppable and flourishing life in the kingdom of God. Last week, we looked at how in Christ, God has completely removed our condemnation so that we can be truly free to experience the life that he has created for us and all the goodness that comes with it. Today, our text continues from that place to take us to some place even deeper. 
Paul wants us to see that because there's no condemnation, we're actually free to receive not only a new reality, but a new identity. And this identity informs how then we live. You know, oftentimes I think when people think of Christianity, they think that it's all about how you live. That Christianity boils down to what you do. It's about the rules. It's about obligation. It's about commands. And often God somehow gets pictured as somewhere out there just waiting for us to mess up the rules so that he can strike us. And that really our faith boils down to a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. But the problem is when that begins to inform our thinking, and that's what the world often tells us what our faith is, and it informs our living, it produces a whole lot of frustration for us. When we make Christianity all about the how of what we're supposed to do, and we forget about who we are, it makes it really challenging. That's why Paul in Romans 7 spends a whole, time, whole chapter essentially reminding us that life is not defined by the law. That just focusing on the law does not define or produce the good life, the flourishing life, or what we might call in the series the unstoppable life. Paul knows that if we're really to experience the life God has for us in all its fullness, here and now and on into eternity, we don't start with what we do, but we have to go back deeper to who we are. You see, the truth of the Christian faith is that it doesn't start with the rules. It doesn't start with how. It starts first with a radical transformation of who we are that is born out of what God has done for us. And what our text this morning wants us to see, what Paul wants us to see as he encourages us to step into that sort of unstoppable life, is that we have a new identity. You might say it this way, that believers in Christ are no longer slaves, but we're actually heirs with Christ. We have a whole new identity in him that informs then how we live. Right, last week in the first part of Romans 8, Paul unpacked for us what God has done for us. Namely, that God in Jesus has freed us from the law of sin and death. He's actually condemned sin itself and now leads us to walk in his spirit. And what reigns over the people of God is the truth that in Jesus there is now therefore no condemnation. This now informs our life. But Paul, in our passage today, wants to build upon that to continue to unpack that reality and then show us how that informs and shapes our identity. You can actually see the transition that Paul makes in verse 9. Look at the text with me. He begins, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If you read through Romans chapter 8, what you see in the first eight verses is that Paul is talking in the third person, but here he begins to shift to the second person. He begins to address his audience in Rome directly. And what he wants to begin to do is to remind them of their identity. That's why he says, you, however, are. That's a statement of being. And he wants us to see how our identity is informed by God's new reality in the Spirit. Verse 9 actually stands in contrast to what Paul said previously in verse 8, where he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When Paul talks about the flesh in Romans 8, he's talking about our fallen sinful nature, the, the parts of us and the parts of our world that are bent away from God, that do not live in line with how God created and called us to be. 
And Paul says when we live in that reality, when that becomes our dominant reality, essentially when we have not put our faith in Jesus, we cannot please God. But he then looks at those that have put their faith in Jesus and says, but you aren't in the flesh. The flesh is not what defines your reality. You and I, we have a new reality in Jesus. Namely, as Paul says in verse 9, we are in the Spirit. The Spirit is now what defines our reality, is the place in which we live, is what God has done in Christ to lead us to walk in the Spirit. Now, Paul adds a condition to that. He says, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul says that because he wants to affirm his audience, to remind them that if they've put their faith in Jesus, that they have come to experience the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. He wants to affirm them, to say, if the Spirit of God is in you, that is now your reality. One of the great promises and truths of Jesus is that when we come to put our faith in him, God gives us his Spirit. He gives us himself. It was Jesus who said in John 14, that he would send the Spirit, and the Spirit would be with you and will be in you. That's incredible that the God of the universe would send himself in the Spirit to indwell our lives, our very being, when we put our faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've put your faith in Jesus, Paul wants to remind you, you are now in the Spirit. He is in you. And because of that, you are Christ's. As Michael Bird says, if one possesses the spirit of Christ, Christ in turn possesses them. That's the beautiful truth of the Christian faith. When you put your faith in Jesus, you get Christ and you get to be in Christ. But Paul adds a warning where he says then in the next phrase, anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. What marks a Christian versus a non-Christian? Is it the rules? No. It's the indwelling nature of the spirit. That's what the difference is. If you are in Christ, you have been given God's spirit. If you are not in Christ, then you do not have his spirit. Although the good news of the gospel is that all you have to do to receive God's spirit is you don't have to do anything other than trust in Jesus. To confess that he is Lord and believe that he has died for your sins and risen from the dead. And you too can have God's spirit in you. But what Paul's point here is, as he begins our passage, is he wants to see that our lives, those of us who have put their faith in Jesus, our lives are now defined by the reality of the Spirit. That's the reality in which we live. And because of it, that reality is going to inform who we are and the reality in which we exist. In fact, Paul wants to unpack in these verses three things that influence both our reality and our identity in Christ and by his spirit. We see the first one come right away in verse 10. Look what he says. But if Christ is in you, that's an amazing reality. That if you are in Christ and you've put your faith by the spirit, Christ comes to dwell in you. That the Holy Spirit applies the life of Jesus to your life in such a way that Jesus is with you always. That's why Jesus would tell his disciples, when the Spirit comes, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. It's actually better that I go away so that I can be with you all the time by the Holy Spirit. But Paul wants to draw out two implications of what happens when Christ is in us by the Spirit. The first thing Paul wants us to see is that if Christ is in you, you have spiritual life. Look what he says in verse 10. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
For Paul, we, you and I, are still in our physical bodies. And our physical bodies are marked by sin, just like our physical world is marked by sin. This is why we sense the struggle between who we are in Jesus and the world and our flesh Paul means, even our physical selves, because God has not yet freed the physical world from its bondage to corruption and death, which Paul will get to later in this chapter. That will come. But what Paul wants us to see is that if Christ is in us, what we do have, although we're in our bodies, is we have spiritual life. God has redeemed our spirit through the spirit. That's why he goes on to say, the spirit is life because of righteousness. For Paul, you and I have an entirely new life within our spirit that God has given to us. Even though we experience the brokenness of the world around us, if you're in Christ, you've been given and been raised in the spirit. How did this happen? Because God gave you his righteousness in Jesus. That's what Paul means. The truth is when you put your trust in Jesus, God takes all your junk, all your unrighteousness, all your sin, and Jesus essentially pays for it. And what Jesus gives to you is his righteousness, his goodness, his perfection. The key theological term is God's righteousness is imputed to you. It's given to you. Now that marks your life. And because that righteousness is given to you, you have life in God. Your spirit now is made alive and you're beginning to see the reality of the life of God's kingdom come to dwell in your life. You're marked by the marks of God's kingdom of love and joy and peace and patience, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that God now gives to your spirit. You have spiritual life in the spirit of God. But not only do you have spiritual life, you also have resurrection life. Look what Paul goes on to say. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul not only draws our attention to say part of what marks your reality by the spirit is that you have a completely new spiritual life, but you also have the hope of a resurrected life. That if the Spirit of God could raise Jesus from the dead, then if he is in you, you have hope that he will raise you from the dead as well. The hope of the Christian life, what Paul points forward towards, is not the hope that we will one day escape this earth. The hope of the Christian life is that God is going to come and renew this earth to make a new world, a new creation, and that in that he will raise our bodies to receive and live in that new world. And Paul essentially says, if the spirit of God could do that in Jesus, who's the first fruits of that new creation, you can have hope that if you have the spirit, he's going to do that one day, that God is going to take your body and resurrect it to bring it into his new creation where there is no sin or suffering or death. And what Paul wants us to see is that the internal transforming power of the spirit that we experience now is a foretaste of the fullness of power that God will bring when he brings us into resurrection and into his new creation. Just as God has raised Christ, he will raise us. And what Paul wants to see as your new reality, if you are in the spirit, is that you actually possess spiritual and resurrection life now that will carry you on into eternity. You have the power of God's spirit 
in your life. That is an amazing thing. Pastor Tim Keller shares an illustration that I think is helpful in reminding us of the power that God has given us. He tells a story of a minister who was in Italy, and while he was there, he saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before, but was not a believer, and and in fact, completely was against Christianity. But he was a little afraid of it. So when when the man died, he had asked that they put a giant slab of stone over his grave, and on it he had ascribed things like, I don't want to be raised from the dead, I don't believe in it, and his hope was that maybe if there was a resurrection, the stone would just keep him down in the grave. But while the minister stood there one day, he noted that an acorn likely had fallen into the grave when they were burying the man, and over time, that acorn had grown into a tree, actually so much so that it had split the slab of stone, and what now stood over the grave was a towering oak tree. The minister looked at it and asked this, he said, if an acorn which has the power of biological life in it can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? And it's a reminder that God has given you his spirit, and that spirit has power, enough power to raise Jesus from the grave. Your life, if you are in Jesus, is not marked by powerlessness, but instead it is marked by a power that can overcome sin. And Keller goes on to ask the questions, what are the immovable slabs in your life that God wants to overcome? Is it your self-doubt or your bitterness? Is it something that's been done to you or something that you've done? Is it your depression or struggle with sin? Paul reminds us that if you're in Jesus, God's given you the power to overcome those things, that they no longer can keep you down, but you possess spiritual and resurrection life in you by God's spirit. And if God can overcome death, certainly he can begin to overcome the struggles of your life and one day will bring those to completion. It's why Paul then moves on to kind of his second point about our reality in verse 12. So out of what he reminds us that we possess spiritual and resurrection power, he then goes on to draw this conclusion in verse 12. He says, so then brothers, or so then brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Again, Paul draws our focus towards identity. He wants to remind us who we are. And part of what he says is, you are debtors. That word's the idea of being morally bound, someone who owes something. But what Paul wants us to see is, we actually don't owe anything to the flesh. You're debtors, but you are not debtors to the flesh, to the fallen sinful nature and the world around us. Paul's reminder here is that because of the Spirit, Because of the freedom God has given, you don't owe anything to the flesh. Because listen, when we live by the flesh, it results in death. When we live by the fallen part of us that's turned away from God, it might feel good for a season, but at some point it destroys ourselves, our relationships, our world, and even our relationship with God And Paul wants us to remind you, that's why you don't owe anything to the flesh. If you are in the spirit, you are not obligated to that reality anymore. You have an entirely new reality. Last year, um, I got a letter from the city that I used to live in. 
And it was a letter from the tax division asking me to begin to make quarterly statements on my taxes to my old city. And I read the letter, and you know what I did with it? I threw it in the trash can. You know why? I don't live in that city anymore. I'm not obligated to pay taxes to Akron, Ohio. I have a new city, and I have new obligations to pay taxes to, right? But I don't have to pay tax to that old city because I don't live in that place anymore. And when they come calling, I throw that message in the trash. What Paul wants to remind you is that if you're in Christ, you no longer have obligations to your old reality. That old reality is going to come calling, right? It's going to bring that temptation back. It's going to tell you, ah, it's okay to say that. It's not really gossip, right? They should know that piece of information. It's okay to watch that. It's not that big a deal. You'll just fast forward through that scene. Or don't click that link. It's not the end of the world. Or one more drink isn't that big a thing. You can control yourself. And oftentimes, our old world, our old reality, our old selves comes calling, and we feel this temptation and this pull. What Paul wants to remind us is to say, you don't owe anything to that reality anymore. When those messages come, when that temptation comes, you don't have to live under its power. You throw that message in the trash, and you say, no, I'm in a new reality. I don't owe anything to that life. I'm now marked by God's kingdom. I'm marked by his spirit. I don't have to listen when you come calling. But not only that, God's spirit reminds us that we have the power to overcome that reality in our life. That's why Paul continues in verse 13 by saying, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. The Spirit of God is given to us, not only to remind us that we don't live in that reality, but actually to overcome it. The old term that people used for this process was the term mortification. It came out of the old King James, which says to mortify the flesh. It's the idea of killing or putting to death, which is the work that we do. And what Paul wants to remind us is that the Spirit actually gives you the power to kill the parts of you that want to lead you away from the life God has for you. And that when we live by the Spirit, we become overcomers of our struggle and our sin. That's the new reality that we're called to step into. I was reminded of this recently in an illustration. I've been going through a course that's been helping me work on developing healthy relationships. So I'm not the most relational person, so need some help with that, right? And one of the things that we've been working on in this course is the reality of the kind of relational things that we inherit from our old family. So part of what we did is kind of identifying relational patterns that we inherit from our family. All of us, every single one of us, inherit patterns of relationship from our family. Some are good, some are bad. And part of what we're doing in this course is trying to identify the kind of negative relational patterns that we develop. And our instructor basically says, at some point, you've got to identify those patterns, and you've got to make the choice to begin to step into developing new patterns for how you relate to people in your family and to others around you. And so I've been in this process of kind of working through that, and I still have a long way to go. I've got a lot of work to do. By God's grace, I'll get healthier and better. But it's reminded me that in many ways, that's what the process of our lives are. 
That the Spirit of God comes to help us identify, all of us inherit kind of the baggage of our sin that we bring into our lives of Christ. But what the Spirit does is it helps us identify those unhealthy patterns. It helps us identify the things that are keeping us from living the life God has for us. And then it gives us the power to begin to break free of those and experience new life in Jesus. That the Spirit actually allows us to put to death, to put to rest the things of our sin and to inherit the new life of Jesus. And I think the question Paul wants to remind us is, where are you still paying taxes to the flesh? Where are you still living in your old family, because God's Spirit's here to help you break free from that. I mean, almost always when I sit down with people and and will deal with some sort of issue of sin, especially struggle with sin in their life, what I will inevitably always ask them, I will say, I I want you to think back to the last time that you really struggled with that, that moment or that issue of sin. And I want you to think about a moment before it. Because I bet there was a moment before that where you heard the voice of God's Spirit. He probably came to you and said, don't say that. That's not for you to say. Or it came to you and it said, don't don't watch that. That's not for you to watch. Or it came to you and said, time to go home. Don't drink that. Or whatever it is, whatever it is. I'm like, identify that moment. And to a person, every time I ask that question, if they have the Spirit of God in them, they can identify that moment. I can say, oh yeah, I can think of that. And I say, here's the key to overcoming the struggle with your sin. It isn't a whole bunch of rules. It's learning how to obey that voice. That when the voice of the Spirit of God comes, which is given to us to help us overcome sin, it's learning to amplify that voice in your life and obey its call. If you can do that, man, you'll start to overcome sin in your life. Because God has given you his Spirit to help you. The rules are, they're not bad things, but they're not the power. The power is the Spirit of God in you. And when you learn to live in obedience to the Spirit, you will put to death the things in your life that hold you back from experiencing the fullness of God's goodness. And if you're trapped this morning in sin and patterns of sin, man, God wants you to know he's given you the resource necessary to overcome. You don't have to sit and learn all the rules. What you need to learn is to hear the voice of God and to obey it when he calls. Now, that's a constant life disposition that you learn and develop and grow, and that's a process. But here's the reminder. You don't owe anything to the flesh. That's not what you're obligated towards. What you're obligated towards is God and his good life. That's the reality that you now live in, and it's out of that reality that God then gives us our identity That's why Paul says in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The reality of the Spirit results in our new identity. If you are in the Spirit, you've received adoption into God's family. You're part of his family. That's why Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And Paul's using very particular language in verse 14, right? So the reason Paul uses the word sons there is he's drawing on two metaphors. It isn't to exclude women. That's not the point. The point is he's trying to use a metaphor to help you understand what your new identity is 
in your new reality by the Spirit. Two images inform Paul's declaration of our identity. The first is the Roman image of adoption. In, in Paul's day, oftentimes social elites who didn't have children to pass on their name and their inheritance and legacy, and legacy would procure successors by adopting them into their family. And when they adopted them, they would receive the rights of the name and the privileges, the legacy and the inheritance of the adoptive parents. But in Paul's day, to be an adoptive son was to receive the fullness and first or foremost of that blessing. It was a high status. And so when Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God, what he wants to realize is that all of us, if we have the Spirit of God, are given the fullness of God's name, his rights, his privilege, that we are in fact foremost in God's family, similar to the adopted sons of Paul's day. The second image that Paul has in his mind becomes clear in verse 15, where he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So Paul has the image not only of Roman adoption, but actually of God's adoption of Israel, the imagery of the exodus in his mind. Because when you go back into the Old Testament, what you see time and again is that God rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai and declared them as his son. They were his people. And Paul is saying what God did in that, God has now done for each one of us if we are in Christ. He didn't take us from the slavery of Egypt. He took us from the slavery of fear, from the realm of the flesh, from our sin, from our bentness away from God, and he rescued us in Christ and brought us to be part of his family. If you're in Christ, you have a new identity. You are God's adoptive children. You are highly favored and loved. You are rescued and brought into relationship with him. Remember, adoption is an act of God's grace. Children do not declare their adoption. Parents declare their adoption of children and pay the price for it. And that's exactly what God did for us in Jesus. He declared over us that we are his sons and his daughters, and we are brought into his family. And because of that, we receive all the blessings that accord to being God's children. In fact, Paul's going to unpack for us six blessings that I think he wants us to see. And I'm going to go through these quickly. I know you hear six. You're like, God, I thought this was long enough already. But I want you to see that if you are in Christ, you have a new identity. And because you have a new identity, you receive blessing because of that. The first blessing that you receive as the children of God is that you receive freedom. Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but what you actually received was the spirit of adoption. The spirit of slavery is a terrible spirit to live under, to constantly be in fear, to constantly wonder if you measure up, to constantly wonder and feel, I've got to do, 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 and then maybe God will like me. But God wants to say, if you're in Christ, you're already in. Your obligation has already been fulfilled. And now to follow God is to live out of relationship with him. You know that there's a much, 
or there is a huge difference between living as a slave and living as a child. For a slave obeys out of fear, but a child obeys out of love and relationship. Fear is one of our great issues in the human race. We're constantly afraid, constantly hoping we measure up, constantly. And yet what God says is, in the Spirit of God, as my children, I free you from that. You're not under that anymore. You've received my love. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're in, and God, if you have the Spirit of Christ in you this morning, God will not unadopt you. You will not do something where God looks at you and says, he's out. No, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you have the spirit of God, you have a spirit of freedom. Not only do you have a spirit of freedom, but you have a spirit of intimacy and the blessing of intimacy. That's why Paul goes on to say, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That Paul word Paul uses there, Abba, is the Aramaic term. It's often used as a term of intimacy and trust with a father figure or with a father. It'd be like us saying dad or daddy or what I call my dad, Pops. That's my name for him, right? It's a term of intimacy. It was the term that Jesus used in his relationship with the father. And what Paul says is when you're in Christ, the relationship that Jesus had with his father is now the relationship you get with your father where you can call him Abba. But not only that, I love what Paul does here. He pairs the Aramaic term for father with the Greek term for father, potter. And he brings them together to show, because he's writing to Jews and non-Jews, it isn't just one people that gets to call God father. It's actually all people. There's no race. There's no culture. There's not one person who does not have the opportunity to live in relationship with God in Christ Jesus because we are one in him. Not only that, Paul goes on to say we get the blessing of assurance. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When you have the Spirit of God and you receive that new identity, you get the assurance that God is yours and you are his. In those moments of doubt, you get the Spirit inside of you that reminds you, no, you're mine, I love you, I died for you. It calls us and leads us. And allows us to navigate challenging seasons. The Spirit bears witness to our life that we are God's children. Not only that, we get the blessing of inheritance. Paul says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The glories that Christ will receive will be given to us as well. That we have an inheritance waiting for us fully and finally because we are God's children. God wants to lavish his blessings upon us. That's what he gives to us in Jesus. God, like good children, gives us discipline as well. That's why Paul goes on to say, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him. Part of the work that we do in God experiencing the suffering that we're experiencing in life is that God works to use it to bring about our good, to discipline us for his kingdom and his purposes. And out of that, we receive, as Paul says, in order that we may be glorified with him that we get glorification, an inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth one day and glorified with Christ. Think of the blessings that you receive as a child of God. Freedom, intimacy, inheritance. I mean, these are incredible realities that you get and what allows us then to live 
the sort of power-filled, unstoppable lives is what God has done for us, both in providing for us the reality of the Spirit and giving us a new identity as His children. And when we recognize that identity, when we recognize we are His, that's what changes how we live. That's what influences us to live the sort of life that God calls us to. I'll close with this, a story from Timothy Paul Jones in his book, Proof. Timothy shares the story one day of taking his kids to Disney World. And he had longed to take him there, and uh, a little bit before this, him and his daughter had, or him and his wife had adopted a young daughter who was their middle child. And this daughter had actually lived with a family previously to Timothy adopting her. And when she lived with this family, that family would take trips to Disney World, but when they would go, they would only take their biological children, and they would leave this girl with a sitter. After Timothy adopted her, he wanted to plan to take him and the whole family and to take her to Disney World so she could experience it for the very first time. But on the way, as they were leading up to the trip and preparing for the trip in the, in the month ahead, the young girl began to act out. She wouldn't listen. She became rebellious. Her whole behavior and demeanor changed. And what Timothy realized was that this girl had been denied the privilege time and again of going to Disney World. And in order to try to figure out a way to justify why she wasn't allowed to go, she figured if she acted bad then her parents would be justified in not taking her. And so Timothy shares that he began to realize this, and so he sat down with her one day to talk a little bit about her behavior. And the first thing that she said is, you're not going to take me to Disney World, right? Because I haven't been acting right. And Timothy began to share with the girl, no, you're actually part of this family. And because you're part of this family, you're going to go to Disney World because our family is going to Disney World isn't because of what you do or don't do. It's because you're part of who we are. And Timothy shares that in the book. He shares how um, the girl received the message, but it didn't change her behavior immediately. In fact, in the weeks kind of leading up, she continued some of her rebellious behavior. But the time came, and they went down, and he took the whole family to Disney World. And they had, you know, the typical Disney World day. But even throughout the day, the girl had some moments where she just was not listening and following the instructions of her parents. But the day finally ended, and they returned back to their hotel that evening. And this is what he writes in the book towards the end. I just want to read it for a second. He says, in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes, snuggled down into her stuffed uniform, unicorn, and after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. In Christ, the God of the universe looks down at you and says, you're mine. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I've done everything necessary to bring you into my family and pour out my blessing upon you. 
And we, when we recognize what God has done for us, when we're able to look back at him and say, I realize it's not about what I do, but just the fact that I am yours, that changes how we live. That's what provides us the opportunity to live the sort of flourishing, unstoppable life that God has for us. And my prayer this morning is that the Spirit of God would bear witness to your spirit that you are God's child. If the Spirit does not bear witness, man, then put your faith in Jesus. Trust in him. You don't have to do anything. Just receive what God has done for you. But may we all live from the place where we're able to look at our Father and say, God, I'm yours. Let me pray for us. God, I stand just amazed in this moment that you, the God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, would see fit to adopt us into your family in Christ Jesus. God, I know. I know we don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it. So often I've acted out of my flesh, bent away from you, spurred your love and your kindness, lived in my own rebellion, and yet you, in your mercy and grace, saved me. You called me your son. And I'm so thankful that you have given me your spirit. And God, I know that's true for so many in this room this morning. Help us to live out of that place of identity. We know the call of the flesh. We know the whispers of the world that try to draw our eyes away from you. We know the pulse of an orphan spirit that tries to tell us that we've got to do something to earn your favor. God, I pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would silence those voices and that in you instead would bear witness to our souls that we are yours and that we have an inheritance in Christ Jesus that can never be taken away. Help us to live from that place. Help us to live not trying to earn your favor, but from your favor. Help us to live not in obligation from a heart of slavery, but help us to live our obligations out of love and relationship with you for what you've done for us. God, I pray for anyone in this room that does not feel the assurance from the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would draw their eyes to Christ and help them to see that again, it is not what they do that earns your favor, but to only receive what has been done for them. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood that's been applied over us, that has saved us and rescued us, that has brought us from darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Even now, as we prepare to sing and declare our identity in you, Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to each person? Would you give us that assurance? Would you let us stand here and say, I am a child of God. That is who I am. So we ask you to move now in power, to work in power in only the way you can. We invite you just even into our response now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. 
head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.